This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, the importance of getting cancer patients to participate in clinical trials. The trials that don't meet their recruitment targets, and there are many, unfortunately, that don't, they're really considered failed trials. Cancer clinical trial recruitment when Radio Health Journal returns. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show. Here's a preview of what they're covering on Viewpoints this week. This week on Viewpoints. These practices are aspirational in nature, and they're also very practical. And I think we, we as uh, human beings are aspirational, practical creatures. Lessons on being a more mindful collaborator. Then, this is what it feels like, and at times it might be very difficult and nearly impossible to connect with happy memories. There have been real studies done to show that Potter books can help people gain understanding if someone is struggling with anxiety and fears. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station, iTunes and Stitcher. Clinical trials are the lifeblood of the advancement of medical science. Until we know that a treatment works, doctors can't use it. Cancer patients often hope that the results of a clinical trial may provide them with a chance to be cured. However, especially when it comes to cancer trials, doctors have a hard time recruiting patients to participate. Two-thirds of cancer clinical trials never meet their recruitment goals. With respect to recruiting adults for cancer clinical trials, less than 5% of potentially eligible patients really participate, become enrolled in clinical trials uh, historically. Dr. David Ahern is director of the program in behavioral informatics and e-health at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, assistant professor of psychology at the Harvard Medical School, and co-author of the book Oncology Informatics, Using Health Information Technology to Improve Processes and Outcomes in Cancer. Unfortunately, the trials that don't meet their recruitment targets, and there are many, unfortunately, that don't, they're really considered failed trials. And as a consequence, they often, because they don't have sufficient participants, the sample sizes, as we say, is too small to have a credible evaluation of the hypothesis of the question that the study was attempting to address. And unfortunately, there's very little that can be done to shed light on that question if the sample sizes are too small. So that has you know, repercussions in terms of slowing down the process of research, which really builds on evidence as studies were done. There's the cost factor. So there's the investment of dollars that don't see a return on investment. It's a big issue, and it's one that has been highlighted as part of the reason why it takes so long for the evidence when studies are done to get into practice because they take so long. We know that if we want to understand more about rare cancers, we need to understand more in the world of precision medicine about how to treat patients from different kind of diverse backgrounds. We're going to have to bump up that kind of recruitment level pretty dramatically. Ahern's co-author is Dr. Bradford Hesse, Chief of Health Communication Informatics Research at the National Cancer Institute. It takes us longer to create discovery, so it takes us longer to find out what may be effective in some of the treatments that we use. 
And it slows us down dramatically in being able to get to the point where we're really making an impact on some of these cancers that are perplexing to us and been bothering us for a long time. So it's that slowing us down piece that we care about so much. As we move toward a strategy to accelerate or get done in five years, what would otherwise take us 10, then we know we have to expand the base of people who could be eligible for our clinical trials and who know about our clinical trials and are engaged and who really want to participate. Hesse says that often trials end up in a race between getting enough participants and running out of money. A trial may limp home with just enough patients to report only some results on some groups that were well enough represented. We can get into just maybe one small group of people, and these are maybe well-educated individuals, high SES kinds of folks, and we can learn about what's happening with them. But, gosh, we don't know what's happening with people perhaps of an Asian-American heritage and have a slightly different physiology and a slightly different understanding of what their environment might be kind of doing to impinge on their treatment. So we need to be able to expand that out, I think. That's important because some groups respond differently to certain drugs than other groups do. Dr. Julie Bramer is co-director of the Upper Aerodigestive Department at Johns Hopkins University's Sidney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center. The most common examples that we see for different drugs having different effects in patients come from, at least in lung cancer patients, come from differences in drug metabolism or how drugs are degraded in our bodies. Patients who are of Asian descent or who live in Asia tend to have a slower metabolism of certain drugs, and so they can be more prone to side effects from those type of drugs if their levels are higher. And so when we're developing drugs, we do have to be aware of that as well. So I think this really does have real-world applications. Studies funded by the National Institutes of Health require minority participation, but those trials make up less than 10% of clinical trials in the United States. Overall, Asians, African Americans, and other minorities are especially underrepresented in cancer clinical studies. Two large trials on immunotherapy are a fairly recent example, according to an analysis in the New York Times. Roughly 90% of participants in both trials were white, and in one of the studies, only 1% was black. Minorities face extra hurdles to getting into trials. Bramer says a big one is proximity. So if someone has to drive a long ways to get to a place that has a clinical trial, or if they don't have the available transportation, if they don't have a car and can't drive in and they're relying on public transportation, they have to be able to get to a place that is on their public transportation line. So we do have to be aware of that. And here at Johns Hopkins, we're trying to do things that make it easier for patients to get here. Bramer says some minority populations have a higher incidence of serious disorders, such as heart and kidney disease, which would disqualify them for a clinical trial. And some doctors simply assume that minorities would not be interested. But Ahern says the biggest obstacle for them or for any patient is simply making them aware that studies exist that are appropriate for them. Money for promotion is scarce. There is a clinicaltrials.gov website supported by NIH and NCI, which does provide information on trials, and that's been a helpful addition. But even with that, there's a challenge for patients with cancers who might benefit becoming aware and then being able to follow through on the enrollment, meet the criteria, and be enrolled. We live in a disconnected healthcare system where right now we don't have the right processes in place. 
so that we can reach out to a provider, make it very easy for a provider to say, here is the blue plate of possible relevant kinds of clinical trials that you would be eligible for. And we can match you to that pretty easily. Information on clinical trials is fragmented now. Oncologists are busy, and while they know about many trials, technology could make the process much easier and more complete. HESI sees it coming. One thing that's going to happen is as we start moving information in and out, we can create channels to deliver information right at that encounter with the patient when an oncologist is sitting down and they're looking at the characteristics of their particular cancer and eligibility for enrollment in a clinical trial. And that information can be served up immediately. And there's no longer a delay of saying, well, what you can do is you can go to the web and learn about clinical trials. It can be a reminder that's set right into the interface of the electronic health record. It's the same way that, you know, I can use something like my mobile or my iPad to make sense of the geography around me when I'm doing a GPS and it's taking me from one step to the next. I think what we want to do is we want to get a GPS for clinical trials. We want to make it very easy for people to say, I know in this time of crisis how to navigate this and get asked the right questions and present information in the right way. We have, you know, startup companies actually that have taken on the challenge of trying to frame these clinical trials in terms that patients would have a better understanding of whether they were a good fit for a trial and what the experience of being in a trial might be like. Many patients also can't get into trials because the enrollment criteria are too strict. Ahern and Hesse say doctors are working on that, too. Many times the nature of the study requires very clear, specific criteria for eligibility and for enrollment and sort of age in many ways has been a criterion limiting upper age limit. So we, by virtue of that, have ended up having results about populations that don't necessarily include an older population, say 75 or older. And that sort of we found that produces some limitations in the generalizability of the information that's been learned from the trial. That's a balancing act, though. The science often requires that we define the eligibility so we understand the populations that are, in fact, being recruited. They think maybe it's been a bit restrictive in the past. Eventually, if you get more people involved because you've lowered those bars of eligibility, then you don't have to answer questions in such a specific way. But you can start using the power of a lot of people coming into the study to start teasing out statistically what would have been kind of a notion of reactivity. You can learn in a broader sense, I think. And so that's one of the reasons why folks have talked about lowering the bar to clinical trials. Hesse and Ahern say there are also societal biases against clinical trials and misinformation about how cancer trials are conducted. Many people believe that the new treatment will be compared against no treatment. And who wants to risk being the person getting a placebo? When you ask the normal person on the street about a clinical trial, what they tend to think is, in fact, that you would get a placebo, that someone is getting a life-saving benefit and they may not. There's a 50-50 chance that they're not. And what they don't understand is the idea that they're going to get best standard of care regardless. And the experimental condition is something that's built on top of that. And it's a necessary step for us to move forward. And if we find out it's working, then you know, very quickly we'll be able to help out all those that are participating in the trial. There's a general stigma against trials, I think, that's probably emerged over time, both, you know, I'm not getting an active treatment, which is a misunderstanding of cancer, but also the idea that maybe my doc's given up on me, that this is, you know, a last resort. And I think we need to change the mindset about that. So not so much last resorts, but innovative opportunities, maybe actually a preferred model 
and also make the benefits of participating more salient to the eligible patient. However, what may make the biggest difference in getting enough people into research is a fundamental change in the very basics of clinical trials. Ahern says it's coming. Instead of thinking about a relatively small number of large-scale trials that have to recruit thousands of patients, there's a movement towards, and this dovetails with the precision medicine initiative and more targeted therapy development, is constructing smaller trials, meaning that they need fewer participants and are done in a more rapid deployment sort of evaluation mode. And that may also lead to a greater proliferation of trials for which patients could be eligible and less of a challenge in recruiting the kind of samples and sample sizes that are needed to really answer the research questions that the trials are designed to address. However, doctors can learn from more than just clinical trials. Every cancer patient carries potential data in their treatment. With paper records, sharing it is very hard, but not with electronic records. If that data that's being collected on that patient for what they may have been treated for could be shared in a de-identified way with other patients who are similar across the country where information sharing is part of the goal of the moonshot, then we could learn literally from the experience of care delivery from patient to patient and not only rely on the clinical trials research model, which it isn't meant to be replaced by this model of each patient becoming a learning opportunity for the field. It's really a complement to it. Doctors need to emphasize the benefits of participating in clinical trials. It's a chance to advance medical science and help others and have access to treatment that they otherwise couldn't receive. In some cases, it could be life-saving. You can find out more about all of our guests on our website, RadioHealthJournal.net. You can also find archives of our programs there, as well as on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm Reed Pence. Colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer-related death in the United States, but it's one cancer that's highly preventable if people get screened. If you aren't aware, you can't prevent it. That's why Steve Edmundowitz, president of the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, says it's good to know. There are different screening tests out there and different recommendations for the age to start screening. There's a lot of information coming at consumers. Every screening test is not right for every person. Colonoscopy is considered the gold standard and is the only test that can actually prevent cancer by removing polyps. That's why it's important to talk with your doctor before age 50, because it's good to know. Don't get your information from cute commercials. Talk with your doctor. Experts recommend colonoscopy and fit tests as the best for people at average risk. ASGE has a handy tool to help you know when and how to get screened. Find out more at screenforcoloncancer.org. That's screenforcoloncancer.org. The burden of Alzheimer's disease on the nation's families and economy is growing rapidly. The Alzheimer's Association 2019 Alzheimer's Disease Facts and Figures Report finds that an estimated 5.8 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's dementia, and one in three seniors will die from it. More than 16 million Americans are caring for a person with the disease. Dr. Keith Fargo is Director of Scientific Programs and Outreach at the Alzheimer's Association. Alzheimer's is now the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S. And by 2050, the number of Americans with Alzheimer's is going to climb to almost 14 million. 
This burden to the country and to families is unsustainable, and it's critical that we continue to invest in Alzheimer's research to reverse this trend. Fargo says in 2019, Alzheimer's disease will cost the country $290 billion. And without scientific advancements, that figure will top $1 trillion by mid-century. Learn more about the impact of Alzheimer's disease at ALZ.org. A message from Alnylam Pharmaceuticals. March is Amyloidosis Awareness Month, aimed at educating people about a group of rare diseases that occur when a substance called amyloid builds up in the organs. One type, hereditary ATTR amyloidosis, can cause a wide range of symptoms, numbness and tingling in hands and feet, burning pain, dizziness, shortness of breath, and digestive issues. The condition runs in some families, but many struggle for years to get diagnosed. Genetic counselor Emily Brown has more. Genetic testing and counseling can help you make informed decisions about your health by identifying your risk for hereditary ATTR amyloidosis sooner and by sharing information about support resources. Alnylam sponsors third-party genetic testing and counseling at no charge for people who may carry a gene mutation associated with hereditary ATTR amyloidosis. For more information, visit alnylamact.com. That's A-L-N-Y-L-A-M-Act.com. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.